This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon. Uh, this is the 2021 version of our case law update with Judge Jim Blake. Uh, this is an annual feature. We, we have done it about four or five straight years, so thank you, Judge Blake. Uh, last year, we uh, did our, our first audio-only podcast version. Uh, this year, we're going to do our first webinar slash podcast version. Uh, so we will have the benefit of being able to look at the cases as Judge Blake talks about them. Uh, if you're not asking a question, please make sure that your, camera, uh, that your microphone is muted. If you have your camera on, then you are going to be saved for all of posterity. So I'm, uh, please turn your camera off unless you're actually asking a question. Uh, if you do have your camera on, please ensure that you're making uh, that, that you are paying attention. Uh, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to introduce Judge Blake. Uh, his bio is in your materials. He has been a judge in Scottsdale for uh, 20 years. That, and and I, did I hear correctly that they just renewed your contract? Yes, it'll be 20 years in September, and they just renewed another four-year term. All right, so we're going to have Judge Blake around for at least another four years, so that is wonderful. He did get his JD from the U of A in 1993. Uh, he got his uh, uh, BS degree from ASU, and he is a former prosecutor. Just a, a great deal of experience and knowledge. And how, how many years have you been doing this for uh, at the Judicial Conference? Uh, probably at least a decade. At least you know, you've done it for as long as I can remember. All right, so we'll go ahead and start with the cases. I'm going to scroll. Uh, so if you've got your camera on, um, you can uh, pay attention. You, you've got the materials in Hightail. Uh, the CoJet certificate is at the end of the packet. Take it away, Judge. Okay, thank you, Charles. Um, as we, we're not going to go through all these cases because it's 48 of them. They're cases that I think are relevant to lower court, limited court jurisdictions. And um, if there's a case that I don't go through and you want to go through, just mention it and I'll uh, read it out and see what you're talking about. The uh, other thing to remember is in case you are a person that was overruled uh, or you know a person was overruled, this is not a reflection on them. Uh, Remember, as a trial judge, you're making decisions uh, at split seconds during several times during the case, whereas appellate courts have the opportunity to sit there with law clerks, study the issue, have briefs written on both sides of the issue, and then make their determination over months. And even then, they're sometimes overruled by the Arizona Supreme Court. So don't take it personally or don't be upset if you or a friend of yours was overruled. You're just making the best decision you can. The other thing is, is to remember, this is my interpretation. Prior to using any of these cases in any of your hearings, make sure you read the case yourself so that you can uh, uh, make the argument you think is appropriate after having read the case. First case I want to talk about is the second case, State of Arizona versus Sosa. And basically this, we see a lot where um, the person is found with different items of drug paraphernalia. For instance, a syringe, for instance, tinfoil, for instance, a, a scale or baggies. Sometimes the state will charge that as all one count, possession of drug paraphernalia. Sometimes they might charge it as four counts, possession of drug paraphernalia for scales, possession of drug paraphernalia for baggies, possession of drug paraphernalia for a syringe, that sort of thing. 
that when the conviction occurs, if it occurs, it's only one count that basically it is because it's one issue. Um, so if you see four counts, just remember you're going to be sentencing on one. Now, times where that might be different is say, for instance, they search your car, they find uh, syringes in your car and charge you with possession of drug paraphernalia there. Later, they get a search warrant for your house and they find other paraphernalia in your house. That could be two separate counts then. So generally, when it's all found at once, at one place, it's one count. If it's all found in other places, theoretically, it might be charged as multiple counts. So just kind of keep that in mind. Next case I want to talk about was the number three case here, State versus Luzon. And basically, this case has to do with, as we all know, there's a new, not new now, a couple of years old, where a cell phone was searched. And the Supreme Court basically said you need a search warrant in order to search a cell phone. So the question came is, you're on probation, probation officer arrests you, does a search, or does a search and then arrests you, and they seize your cell phone. And the question was, is can they, the probation officer search your cell phone without a search warrant? And in this case, they found they could. And the reason being is, one is you're on probation, two is typical of your probationary terms is for um, supervised probation, depends to make sure this term is there is, the probation officer or the probationer, sorry, the probationer gives up uh, their Fourth Amendment right to search and seizure. So by being on probation and signing those terms and that being one of the terms, they've allowed their personal property to be searched if there's cause by the probation officer. So in this case, the person was on probation, they had signed the probationary terms saying that the, they agreed to waive their Fourth Amendment right while on probation and to allow these searches. And in this case, the probation officer had the right to search the cell phone because of those instances. So even though they would say the Supreme Court says, wait a minute, to search a cell phone now, you need a search warrant. That doesn't apply in Arizona with probationary felony searches because the person gave up that right in writing. Next case I want to talk about was number five down at the bottom of your uh, scroll. Uh, and this basically is there's a motion basically to suppress the person pulled over, investigated for DUI, arrested for DUI. And in this case, it was the circumstances were 2 a.m. And as we all know, at 2 a.m. In, uh, in a bar area, that's when bars close here in Arizona, the person had shot watery eyes. They smelled of alcohol or there, sorry, I shouldn't say they smelled of alcohol. There was a smell of alcohol from the car, which is different. Uh, them smelling of alcohol would be higher or, or more evidence. There was an admission to drinking and one pass of the HGN. The lower court ruled that this was only evidence of consumption and not evidence of impairment and therefore suppressed the evidence from the DUI investigation. Personally, if I'd been a judge, I would rule that no, that's enough for the to continue with the investigation and all that evidence comes in. Uh, this judge did not. It went up to Superior Court. Superior Court reversed that ruling and said, yes, that was enough evidence or probable cause or information to continue the DOI investigation and do the arrest. And then the defendant filed a special action. The Court of Appeals upheld the Superior Court ruling and not the lower court ruling. There was, however, a strong dissent in the case. Um, and as those of you who do DUI law knows, that's a lot of the evidence that you have generally to justify the DUI investigation, the DUI arrest. Next case I wanted to talk about was case number seven. We can scroll up a little. 
And remember, six is in there. It can be important. You might want to read it yourself, but it's not uh, no, not going to go, go over that case today. And in this case, basically on number seven, it was a um, forest agent or forest ranger. And basically, some guy's cursing him out, that sort of thing. And the person is, uh, the, the uh, forest agent or ranger doesn't really think that much of it, but he does report it to a supervisor who says you need to call the police. Police get involved. The defendant is charged with threatening and disorderly conduct. On this case, the uh, threatening is uh, reversed by the Superior Court, but upholds the disorderly conduct charge. Defendant then special actions, and the Court of Appeals reverses on the disorderly conduct charge because the victim's peace was not disturbed. And that was an element that they believe you have to have in order to have disorderly conduct. And basically, the forest agent says, you know, I'm used to people screaming at me all the time. It didn't bother me. My peace wasn't really disturbed. That's why I didn't do anything on it until my supervisor told me I needed to involve the police. So in disorderly conduct cases, you have to have the person's peace is disturbed. So keep that in mind. That's an important issue. Next one we want to talk about, or I want to talk about, is number eight, State versus Macias. And in this case, uh, basically what happens is, is there's an evidentiary hearing, uh, defendant loses, then there's um, uh, on the misconduct involving jurors. And basically what the jurors did is, the jurors were discussing the case prior to the conclusion of the trial and then going into the jury deliberation. We know, in, as I understand it, in civil cases, that's allowed. In criminal cases, it is not allowed. Jurors are not to discuss the case or the ultimate issue of fact, and that's one of the instructions we give when we're selecting the jury. So um, that was an issue that came up. Judge holds an evidentiary hearing and does not overturn the verdict based on that. Next issue they had was the appellate court, uh, the appellate counsel did not render ineffective assistance to counsel by failing to anticipate a future development in the law. In this case, the law changes to a certain degree. It's not brought up to the court because the law had not changed yet. And since it hadn't changed yet, there's no way to bring it up to the court. And therefore, there is not ineffective assistance of counsel because, of course, he was operating under the standard that all counsel were operating on and the law had not changed. The final thing I want to bring up on this case is there was a claim also of ineffective assistance counsel because there was a technical violation in the charging document or a vagueness challenge to the crime. The lawyer didn't bring it up. It wasn't an issue that would have overturned anything. It wouldn't have changed anything. And therefore, they said that is not ineffective assistance counsel. You don't have to raise every little bitty issue if it's not valid and if it's not going to do anything. One of the issues um, that the court brought up here that's important is on the premature deliberations of the jury, they were only talking about things themselves that they had heard in the courtroom. Okay? They weren't going out, they weren't investigating, they weren't uh, filing uh, news reports or bringing into paper or anything like that. And the court made a big distinction between that. While they shouldn't talk about the trial as it's ongoing, if they're just talking about the information that came down at the verdict, while that's improper, it shouldn't happen, it's not going to get you a new trial. If new information they brought in, for instance, I saw this thing on the news last night, and they said he confessed, even though we haven't heard about it, that is going to be a different issue. You're going to get probably a new trial based on those circumstances, 
you're not going to get it when they violate the rule, but they're just talking amongst themselves about the case. So keep that in mind if this sort of thing ever occurs. There's a big difference between information from the trial that's occurring and information that comes outside the trial. One gets you a new trial, the other one does not, based on the facts in this case. Next case I would like to talk about would be number 10. And basically a number 10, what that is, is uh, people are having trouble at a bar, it's getting a little uh, heated, the defendant leaves. Eventually the defendant comes back, They're, uh, they are not having any more trouble at the bar, and eventually again it goes downhill, trouble starts to arise again, the parties leave the bar, and eventually the victim ends up dead. Now defendant wants to use justification as a defense and the victim has a reputation for violence. Defendant did not know about the victim's reputation, but it is there. Judge forbids that to come in at the trial on the just, with the justification defense, and the defendant in this case is convicted of manslaughter. Defendant appeals and the conviction is overturned. The court says, when a criminal defendant raises a justification defense, he is entitled to offer at least some proof of the victim's reputation for violence. A defendant may offer reputation or opinion evidence of the victim's violent or aggressive character to show the victim's propensity for violence, even if the defendant did not know about that character. So keep in mind, if you have a justification defense, this may be one thing they want to, they want to introduce to you as the trier of fact in a lower court, and you should allow it in in order to get the full picture and to allow them to present their defense. Next case I wanted to talk about is um, the next one is is number 11, State versus uh, Stubbe. And in this case, what happens is is the um, business is being burglarized by the defendant. The business has set up a camera that is activated by um, motion. So when the camera, when the motion detector picks up that you're inside the business when no one's supposed to be there and it's been activated, it films you doing the burglary. And as a prosecutor, you would think that's pretty good evidence and I would really like to get that in, in the trial. As a defense attorney, you think, oh, that may make it difficult for me to explain at trial why that person who allegedly looks like my client and allegedly maybe sounds like my client, is actually in this business after hours taking things. So you want to naturally as defense attorney to preclude it. In this case, uh, they're arguing it's hearsay and should be precluded. Now, the um, judge in this case decides to allow the evidence to come in. And in this case, allows it to come in and the defendant is convicted because everyone can see the person committing the crime on the tape. So it goes up uh, to trying to overturn the judge's uh, lack of suppression of the evidence. And in this case, the Court of Appeals decides that yes, the evidence should have come in, but the judge gave the wrong reason for allowing the evidence to come in. I think in this case, the reason the judge gave was as a business record, so therefore it could come in. And uh, What's good about this case is one is uh, the judge was upheld, and two is to remember, if you make the right ruling, even if you do it for the wrong reason, if there's a right reason, 
then the court will find the right reason and uphold the admission of the evidence and state the right reason. In this case, the court ruled that uh, it says, in this opinion, we hold that an automated, automated email and a machine-produced video recording the attachment to the email are not hearsay because they were not made by a person. Um, one of the interesting things I find about this, though, too, is if you're going to try to argue it was hearsay, as a prosecutor, I would say, well, if it's hearsay, which it's not uh, because of the court ruling here, but as a prosecutor, I'd say, well, if you were, even if you were going to find it to be hearsay, it would be a party opponent admission because it's the hearsay of the defendant doing all these things. Now, of course, they would argue, no, it's the hearsay of the machine recording it. But in this case, you know that, no, that can come in. And I think we're going to see that more and more in cases as people are setting up, you know, like the ring uh, doorbell thing where it records everything, the uh, motion detectors in your house that activate cameras, that sort of thing. So you're going to see more and more of this as evidence being admitted into court. And here's your case that gives you the reason to allow in that admission. Next case I want to talk about is number 13, because this case um, reverses a lot of the restitution cap that's been in place for about 30 years. Um, when I first started as a prosecutor, you didn't have to put restitution caps in. Then about seven years into me being a prosecutor, they changed it to you did have to have a cap in order for the plea to be taken as a knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily entered plea. And uh, now this case is throwing out those 30 years of cases. Um, and they're saying, nope, you don't need a cap anymore. Um, they put here, we hold that the practice of placing a cap on the amount of restitution a defendant may be liable for in a plea without the victim's consent violates the right to restitution. There is no constitutional requirement to inform a defendant of a specific amount of restitution or to cap the amount of restitution that the court may order. And thus we overrule State versus Lukens, State versus Phillips, and State versus Crowder for that proposition. They also hold that additionally, we hold that a lawyer representing a victim has a presumptive right to sit in front of the bar in a courtroom during the proceeding where the victim's constitutional or statutory rights are at issue. Uh, for some reason in this case, the judge did not allow the victim's lawyer to sit in the bar, in front of the bar, but made them sit in the audience. And they said, no, no, you have to allow it. Um, I'm, I don't know it, uh, what the judge was thinking in that case or why they did that, but in this case, it's saying, no, you have to allow it. The uh, one thing I do notice about this case is um, I don't really understand why they say in their opinion. We hold that the practice of placing a cap on the amount of restitution the defendant may be liable for in a plea agreement without the victim's consent violates the right to restitution. First of all, under the law, the victim's entitled to full restitution for economic loss. Second of all, if you put a cap in and the amount of restitution that's actually determined, the full amount, is above the cap, it doesn't mean you don't get that restitution. What it means under the old law is a judge would have to say if it's not a de minimis amount, like a dollar or something like that, the defendant has a right then to withdraw from the plea if they don't want to agree to the full restitution. So it doesn't really violate the right to restitution. But here they say it does, so we need to follow it uh, because the Supreme Court is our Supreme Court and uh, make sure you don't put a cap anymore. Um, 
You could do it if you have the victim's consent, but why do it? The other thing that's important to do is since there's no cap anymore, make sure when you're taking the plea and you're going to set it to a restitution hearing, because there isn't a determination as to restitution, that you tell the victim, I'm not the victim, sorry, you tell the defendant that there's going to be a restitution hearing. You're going to decide what restitution is owed, and the defendant has a right to be present at that hearing and to contest that type of evidence. So the defendant is aware of all that before you hold the hearing. Next case that I would like to talk about is number 16. You can go to that. 16. Okay, there we are. And basically in this case, we're seeing more and more of this. Um, not in lower courts, I should say, but in, uh, I guess, in superior court and such. Um, in this case, we're talking about a 13, ARS 13-4033C, and that has to do with, you know, basically if the defendant is convicted and doesn't show up for sentencing within 90 days, they give up their right to direct appeal. Now, first of all, when that came out, in, the, in this case, the defendant had a suppression hearing lost. He's warned that if he, uh, if he, uh, that he would lose his right to direct appeal if he's absent from sentencing. The defendant wants to the case in order to hire different counsel. The court denies the continuance, the defendant flees. Court has a trial in the defendant's abstentia, and as he is convicted, he's caught two years later and sentenced. After he's sentenced, the defendant appeals. The state then tries to say, wait a minute, he cannot appeal. He gave up his direct appeal under ARS 13-4033. Court looks at it and says, not so fast. And what they, what they look at is they say, first of all, he was told that if you don't show up for your, if you're absent from your sentencing, you, uh, you lose your right to direct appeal. They say that's not enough. You have to be a lot more specific. And there's another case in this, these materials that also addresses this issue. So if you're going to do that, for instance, one of the things we do at arraignment is part of their rights. We tell them, if you're convicted of this offense, and if you do not show up, within 90 days for your sentencing, you lose the right to direct appeal. So they're told you will lose that right and it's 90 days. That's important to let them know the 90 days because you're communicating to them when that's going to be an important point. So that was the issue. Then they also pointed out, when do you do all this? Decide that they don't have the right to direct appeal. You just say, here's your sentencing, let the appellate court make that determination. The answer to that is no, you don't do it when that occurs. You do it at time of sentencing. Reason being is, that's a factual determination that they lose their right to direct appeal. Were they informed that they could lose their right to direct appeal? Were they informed of the 90 days? Um, and then did, they, then did they not show up within the 90 days? So you should be making that ruling as the judge at the sentencing. The state should be bringing this up to you. The state has the burden of proving this to the judge at the time of sentencing. So make sure that you make that determination if you're going to make that determination so that when the defendant does appeal, they can point out, no, there was a hearing on this. The court has already ruled he's not entitled to direct appeal, and then you can move on. on that. In this case, that wasn't done, so therefore the court would hear the direct appeal. Now, since they're going to hear the appeal, they go on to the issues that were presented in the trial. 
And in this case, the defendant is stopped. Um, the, the officer is done with the information he needs. Now the defendant needs to be either released or allowed to go home or drive on or whatever, or you, he can, it can change into a consensual encounter, which in this case they find it does. And the, the cop eventually found articulable suspicion of criminal activity afoot. Defendant was held till that was done, and then um, it was too late. So he should have been gone. He should have been allowed to be released. He would have been released, except he decided to talk to the officer. And as they were talking, the officer eventually decided or found articulable suspicion that criminal activity was afoot, and he could hold the defendant. It wasn't the defendant was prevented from going. It's that it was changed into a consensual encounter. Final thing is, is was the judge wrong to not allow the defendant to hire new counsel? The court found that uh, no, uh, the judge was correct in not granting the motion to continue to hire different counsel. But as we all know in life, there are always, no one ever totally wins or no one ever totally loses. In this case, the state lost the, um, the ability to stop the appeal. The state won the, um, the uh, suppression issue, that the traffic stop wasn't too long. The state won that the uh, right to, the, or the judge's denial of motion to continue to hire new counsel was correct. But the defendant also won in this case because the defendant challenges the court imposing a $2 fee, which was not in effect at the time and the court vacated that $2. So the defendant didn't totally lose the case. Also one saved himself $2 by that appeal. Um, this issue is also drawn up as to the uh, uh, waiver of direct appeal on case 28, and we'll talk about that when we get to case 28. Next case I want to talk about was case number 19. Now, case number 19, while this is not dealing directly with the limited jurisdictions, it will have an impact on the limited jurisdictions. And what this case talked about was when you do threatening intimidating and you're a member of a street gang, it becomes a felony as opposed to a class one misdemeanor. So they considered whether just being a member is good enough in order to enhance the sentencing. And they held it was not. The court wrote, we hold that it, is not, that it is not because it increases a criminal sentence based solely upon gang status, a violation of substantive due process. You can join organizations that you want to. Just being a member of the organization doesn't increase the crime classification or the penalty. Um, and in this case, what it was is, say, for instance, I was a member of a gang, but I didn't like the way someone looked at I didn't like the way someone cut me off in traffic nothing to do with the gang. I'm not involving the gang. I'm not saying my gang's going to come get you. I just go, hey, you cut me off. I'm going to beat you up. Um, and therefore, I threatened them. Had nothing to do with the gang. I didn't invoke the gang's name or the gang's reputation. Therefore, it's a misdemeanor, not a felony. Just gang status is unconstitutional to use it to increase the level of felony or criminal classification or the penalty. So keep that in mind, and that's why you might see more of these cases in city courts or JP courts where the person is a gang member, but the threats had nothing to do with the gang. So that's why you might see an increase on that. Next case I wanted to talk about was case number 21. And in this case, this had to do with a person who was not yet the attorney or the defendant. 
but he is an attorney. And they're talking on the phone. And naturally, the prosecutor wants to get copies of those conversations to see if they were talking about um, uh, criminal activity, an admission that wasn't covered by attorney-client privilege, or is the attorney part of this criminal activity? So they uh, try to get a search warrant in order to hear it and get seize the phone records or the phone conversations. They want the court to hold a hearing and determine if the privilege applies by use of a special master. So what can happen is the court can appoint a special master. They can hear the tape because if it does involve attorney-client privilege, the state should not hear it. The state should not be able to use it. The state should not get any information from it. So they want a special master to review this. Um, to give you an example where this is occurring is, um, for instance, and when uh, the attorneys for former President Trump, uh, Mr. Cohen, uh, they when they seized his items, they had a special master go through to separate those items that were attorney-client privilege. The state cannot see and allow the prosecutors to see those that are. Our court said a person claiming attorney-client privilege must first make a prima facie showing supporting that claim. In this case would be easy. I'm a lawyer. I was talking to this person, my client, about their case, prima facie case. Upon such a showing, the court may hold a hearing to determine whether the privilege applies, but the court may not invade the privilege to determine its existence, even in in-camera using a special master. Once the privilege has been established, a party attempting to set it aside under the crime fraud exception must demonstrate a factual ba basis adequate to support a good faith belief by a reasonable person that an in-camera review of the materials may reveal evidence to establish the claim that the crime fraud exception applies. Only then may a special master be a, review the privileged materials. So first, the prosecutor has to, if, if the prima facie case is, is supplied, then the court has to hear from the prosecutor, and then they have to establish that uh, the crime fraud exception uh, may be there, and they have a good factual basis adequate to support a good faith, good faith belief by a reasonable person that the in-camera inspection is necessary. The court agrees to that, and you can't use the tapes to do it. You can't have the special master review the tapes first and say, hey, wait, look what I found. You have to convince the court of that prior to the special master being applied, appointed. Then, a if the court is convinced, a special master would be appointed to review the privileged materials and determine, uh, are they privileged or are they not? Does the prosecutor get to see them? Next case I wanted to talk about was number 22. Now, in this case, this is a Supreme Court case overturning a Court of Appeals case that when the Court of Appeals case came out, I predicted it would be overturned just because it is, um, it was, um, hmm, what's the proper word? It was a case I didn't agree with. <laughs> so then I, that's why I predicted it would be overturned by the Arizona Supreme Court. And basically what this case is, is uh, I allegedly steal a car. I'm driving around with the car. Please come after me. I drive away. Um, I finally ditch the car and run off. Other police arrive. They go to the police officer who's chasing me in the car and say, um, here's a picture of Jim Blake. Was that Jim Blake driving? Yes, it was. That's him. 
They also notice there's a fingerprint on the car. It's visible there, but they don't take it. They don't copy it. They don't print it. They don't uh, dust for fingerprints and take that print. So at trial, the defense wants a Willits instruction because, oh, and then after they get done with the car, they return it to its own. So there's no fingerprints in the mail. There's no DNA evidence. The, um, the defendant wants a Willits instruction. They're going to give a Willits instruction and they, and uh, they're not given a Willits instruction. And the court says you should have given one. Now, the problem with that is, is for people who try cases in practicality, the police almost never take fingerprints. So then that would be in almost any case um, that they'd get a Willits instruction. And the problem is too, the state would then have to bring in witnesses to say, just because I touch something doesn't mean there's a fingerprint. A lot of times there aren't prints um, for whatever reason. The person wore gloves. The person wiped it down afterwards. The person wasn't secreting a lot of the uh, oil that you have on your fingers at the time and didn't leave a print because of the heat. Uh, someone else touched it afterwards. There's a lot of reasons why there won't be a fingerprint and you'd have to constantly bring in witnesses to say, here's why that isn't uh, a good inf information. That's why we wouldn't have. The other thing is, is the lack of fingerprints is not exculpatory. It's good for an argument. And you could say, well, hey, my client's fingerprints weren't found there. That does not mean you didn't touch it. It's, it's evidence you could use. It's evidence to make an argument on, but it's not exculpatory. It's generally only incriminatory. Um, if the evidence is found inside the car and you don't have any reason for you ever being in that car, the fingerprints found inside, that's really hard to explain when you say it wasn't me and I've never seen that car in my life and I've never been in that car. And if it's found outside, it doesn't really mean one way or the other. I could have walked by a place, oh yeah, I stopped to pick up a dime I dropped and touched the car. And that's why um, my fingerprint was there outside the car. I was never in it. So they basically said, no, in this case, a Willits wouldn't be necessary. And they gave more information on a Willits instruction. And basically that talks about how the Willits instruction talks about how if evidence wasn't preserved or got by the police, it could be considered along with any explanation as to why it wasn't in deciding the guilt or innocence of the defendant. It's, it's an actual instruction that you have in your jury guide. And basically what they wrote was, in sum, a defendant is entitled to a Willits instruction when the state fails to preserve evidence that is obviously material and reasonably accessible that could have a tendency to exonerate the accused and the defendant is prejudiced thereby. The obvious materiality of the evidence must be apparent at the time the state encounters the evidence during its investigation. The state's failure to gather every conceivable piece of physical evidence does not require a Willits instruction. However, if the state fails to collect evidence that, though not obviously material, turns out to be material, it is up to the trial judge to determine if the state's failure to recognize its materiality was reasonable or not, and to give a Willits instruction only where it finds the failure to have to failure to have not been to have been unreasonable. This allows the defendant the opportunity to challenge the reasonableness of the state's failure to preserve evidence during its investigation. If the trial court determines that the state's failure to collect evidence during its investigation was unreasonable, a Willits instruction is appropriate. So it does give you a time or more information as to when you should give one and when you should not. Next case I want to talk about is case number 23. 
State versus Reed. This is a case we've had going up. Go ahead. Judge, before we move on, um, I, I want to remind everyone, if you want to ask a question, go ahead and turn your camera on. You can also use the chat box to ask questions. And um, before we move on, uh, Judge, can you tell me when you typically will grant a Willits instruction? Give us some examples of where you have done. To be honest, I don't think I've ever granted a Willits instruction. I don't think it's occurred. Ever? <laughs> no. All right. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've ever granted one. I mean, I don't mean it's never occurred. Willits instructions have been granted, of course, but it's just I haven't had one in a case where it became that relevant. Um, because first of all, like in bench trials, they can make they make the argument without even asking for a Willits instruction because the judge knows. Second of all, in jury trials, um, most of the jury trials they do are DUIs, and there's nothing that they didn't collect, to be honest, that I've seen where the defense has asked for a Willits. I don't, th I can't think of one having been asked. I did have one where they requested it, to be honest, but I said that comes up at trial, not prior to trial, and they ended up pleading, so it didn't matter. Okay. Um, so the next case, if there, if there are no other questions, we'll go on to number 23. This is a case that's been up to down, up, down. And basically, um, if you'll remember, this is the case where the defendant's convicted. There's an issue on restitution. The restitution is awarded, Mr. Reed, and they appeal up on the restitution award. Mr. Reed dies in the meantime. And so they move to dismiss the whole case, uh, the defense. And they say, no, um, everything stays in place. And, uh, and uh, the convictions there, you just, and uh, restitution awards there. So they go up on that and say, wait a minute, um, I should be allowed to challenge the restitution order. In this case, it was Mr. Reed's wife who challenged the restitution order. And they said under circumstance, certain circumstances, the restitution order can be challenged. For instance, everything's ready, all they're waiting for is a ruling. Second of all, the person who comes in to stand in the place of Mr. Reed has some uh, interest in this. And for instance, obviously in a community property state, the wife would have an interest in it because if the restitution award is upheld, it comes out of the estate. Um, if it's not, then she gets that money. So um, you would have the issue as to uh, restitution. So she um, has a right to challenge the restitution. And the reason that this case is important, this one, not the previous reads, this is probably read number three, is um, there's always a question is, if a victim hires a lawyer to help them in their case, is the victim entitled to the lawyer's fees as part of restitution? I always was kind of the opinion that, no, you're probably not, um, but it hadn't been settled. Um, and in this case, settles it, at least for the Court of Appeals. We'll have to wait to see read four when it goes up to the Supreme Court on this issue. And basically, they point out that in certain cases have come up, there have been awards for rest, attorneys, victims' attorneys' fees as restitution, and that hasn't been challenged, just the amount has been challenged. So therefore, this case is standing for the proposition that yes, you can get the victims' attorneys' fees in this case for restitution purposes. Now, the judge still has to determine, is it reasonable? And basically what they write is, although Reed's counsel challenges the restitution awarded, which they can do, there's no problem with that. Indeed, the Arizona Supreme Court has affirmed such an award. 
ruling that Superior Court did not abuse its discretion in awarding attorney's fees as restitution. The defendant in L-E-T-E-V-E did not challenge the award on appeal, and the court assumed without deciding the attorney's fees incurred to enforce victims' rights may be in restitution. The court has affirmed restitution awards for attorney's fees incurred in probate proceedings of victims who were killed, findings attorney's fees incurred to close victims' estate are proper restitutionary items that are where no evidence indicates the fees occurred were unreasonable or contrary to custom. We believe that customary and reasonable attorney's fees incurred to close a victim's estate should be allowed as restitution. So keep that in mind, that it is there, but you have to make a determination as a judge, which you would do in any case, are these reasonable and not contrary to custom when you award the restitution fees. Okay, our next case is number 24. And in number 24, there's several issues here, but I wanted to bring up, and in this case, the defense was objecting to the state referring to the victim as a victim, and the judge allowed it. And they took that up, and they found this was not a violation of the person of the state referring to the victim as the victim. Some of the things you might want to be cautionary as a judge, though, is on circumstances where the case is, for instance, a challenge to did it occur or did it not? Is the victim or alleged victim untruthful? For instance, say, for instance, the case involves a sexual assault, and both sides, state and defendant, agree the victim was sexually assaulted, but my client isn't the guy. It's a mistake. It's mistaken identity, that sort of thing. You could always argue on that as a judge that everyone agrees the person's a victim here, so therefore there's no problem with the judge referring to the person as a victim. The more question you get is, say, for instance, again, to give you that example, sexual assault. The victim says it occurred. The defendant says, no, it was consent. So the whole question here is not a crime occurred, who did it? The question here is, is there a crime? In those cases, you might want to be more concerned about referring to the person prior to conviction as a victim, because the whole purpose of the trial is to decide, was there a crime and therefore a victim, or was there no crime and therefore no victim? But in this case, the state can refer to the victim as a victim, and there's no violation that they found. So keep that in mind if you have those issues arise. Next case I want to talk about was number 27. And in number 27, you have a case where the defendant is out of Rule 11, asks for a new attorney. The judge refuses, and during the discussion with the victim, I'm sorry, during the discussion with the defendant, the defendant says he wants to represent himself. Now, from the record, it's not really clear what happened. Was there or was there not an address on this issue? But the denial, the request to represent themselves and a new attorney is denied. The defendant is not addressed as to, it's not a good idea to represent yourself, you're Rule 11, you were Rule 11, you're now competent, there's an attorney here, you should deal with the attorney, that type of thing. So 
the issue comes is if the defendant wants to represent himself, do you have to have a hearing? And the answer is yes, you can't just deny it. And they point out that the right to counsel includes the right to proceed without counsel. So you have a right to an attorney under these circumstances. You also have the right to proceed without and represent yourself. Court can't make that determination without a hearing. So make sure if you're going to make a determination one way or the other that you have a hearing. It's best to have a hearing even if you're going to grant the defendant's request because you know what's going to happen is after the defendant loses, if he loses or she loses uh, and had been in a rule 11, the first thing they're going to say is, I know I asked for an attorney, but you should have never granted me one. I'm crazy. Why did you do that? So have the hearing one way or the other. Once you have all the facts, then make your determination as to if you're going to grant it or not and your reasons. Because you know, if the defendant's convicted, no matter what you do, that's going to be an issue raised on appeal. So cut it off at the very beginning, have the hearing, flesh out your record, make your decision, and make sure your decision is supported by the facts as you do it. Um, they also point an erroneous denial of a right to proceed pro se by refusing to permit a defendant to waive counsel violates the defendant's constitutional rights and is reversible and structural error. A defendant must timely and unequivocally invoke the, invoke the right, and unless the request was made for the purpose of delay, the court must grant a timely request if the defendant's invocation is knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligent. A request may be made, a request made before the jury is impaneled is timely. In this case, it was just before the jury to be impaneled, and the judge didn't really have it or listen to it or do it, so make don't say, hey, we're picking the jury right now. It's, we're going to pick the jury in 10 minutes. Not right now, in 10 minutes. Jury has not been impaneled. Jury hasn't been told. So therefore, it is a timely indication. Have your hearing. They point out, and the defendant's request to proceed pro se triggers a court's protective duty to ascertain whether the waiver of counsel is intelligent, knowingly, and voluntarily. A court may not refuse to consider a defendant's request altogether. Otherwise, the constitutional right to defend oneself, if he is intelligently and competently chooses, would be illusory. There's a case from last year or the year before that talks about this too, but they have it in a different uh, ruling. The court did have a hearing. Now, it was a Rule 11 proceeding. The person is found competent, and the defendant wants to represent himself. And the court concluded after the hearing after um, listening to everything and after making their rulings, the defendant was not competent to represent himself as a lawyer in the case. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Rule 11, he was found to be competent. How could he not be competent to represent himself? And the reason being is representing yourself as an attorney is a higher standard than, rep than being competent to proceed at trial. You can be competent to proceed a trial, but not competent to represent yourself. And the court, in that case, had a hearing, made a decision, supported its decision on the record, and was upheld. So remember that if you have these issues come up. Have the hearing, listen to all sides, but just because a person's been found competent to sit at their trial and to assist their lawyer does not mean they are competent to um, rep be their lawyer at the hearing. Next case I want to talk about is number 28. This is the case that I told you about earlier when we were talking about the uh, 
ARS 13-4033C, the uh, giving up the right to direct appeal. This is another case they had on the issue. This is a court of appeals decision. And again, they talk about make sure you specifically use the 90-day language and not a vague quote as they had in this case. You could lose your right, you, you could lose your appeal rights if you fail to appear for sentencing after conviction. They found that was not enough. So make sure that you do that. Next thing they talked about is um, it should be done at sentencing. You need to mention the 90 days and they put Further, even none, even none was adequately warned of the consequences of delaying his sentencing. The court nevertheless did not make a, find, a finding at sentencing that he knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waived his right to appeal. So you give him the 90-day language. You make sure that's part of the record so you're not remembering it. It's part of the record that anyone can find. Second of all, the state brings it up at sentencing because you're the trial judge, you need to make this ruling prior to the sentence and prior to going up on appeal. You need to make the ruling that the person knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waived the right to appeal. The other thing that you need to do is make sure at your hearing where you're making this, evident, this evidentiary ruling, the defendant is given the opportunity to present any information to you as to why they didn't appear. Um, one good thing would be, hey, the minute I left your court after you set the trial date, I was immediately taken into custody and I've been in prison, unable to leave for the last four years. So I did not voluntarily waive my right to be present. I was imprisoned by the prosecutor, the state over there in another case. In that case, you might very well find the defendant did not voluntarily absent themselves from sentencing. They were prevented to come, prevented from coming, because of course we discourage escaping from prison in order to come and be sentenced on another criminal matter. So always give the defendant at the hearing the opportunity to provide any explanation and any proof as to why they should not have been found to have a knowingly, voluntarily, or intelligent waived right to appeal. Um, as people get in lower courts, when you say, "Why didn't you show up for your court date?" Oh, I was in California. Now. Uh, those of us who border California know that you can actually pass through the border fairly easily without any trouble. So that's not a good reason. But defendants, for some reason, think it's a good reason for not appearing. Uh, if they present that to you at one of these hearings, you can say, well, that's not a good reason for not appearing. If they're in prison, then maybe they have a very good reason for not appearing. And you might want to not uh, find that they voluntarily did not show up. Next case we would talk about would be number 29. Now 29 has to do with an interesting case. It's again an overruling of a uh, court of appeals case. And in this case, it had to do with basically um, getting an IP address on say uh, Joe Blow and you want to know uh, whose IP address this is and you go to the company and they say, well, that's Joe Blow's case. Our, uh, that's Joe Blow, he has an IP address. They didn't get a search warrant, they got an administrative subpoena. And basically they found, the Court of Appeals did, was that that wasn't good enough, they needed a search warrant because this involved the um, uh, search of the information. They, uh, the dissent was kind of like, well, I, I don't think they really understand what IP addresses are or subscriber information is, that sort of thing. They also pointed out the third party doctrine 
uh, oh wait, sorry, before we get to that, one of the important things here is that they were deciding the Arizona Constitution gives more expansive rights on Fourth Amendment searches than does the U.S. Constitution. And then they go on to third, the third-party doctrine. Some states adopt it, some states do not. Third-party doctrine is if I share my information with a third party, I really don't have a reasonable right of expectation. And therefore, the administrative subpoena was good enough because I shared that information. Um, here in the Court of Appeals, they said, uh, we're not going to follow the third-party doctrine, and there's more of an expansive right as to the Fourth Amendment or our Fourth Amendment in our Constitution of Arizona, and therefore, that should have been a search warrant, not an administrative subpoena. It goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says that we could scroll up just a little more to get the rest of the case. Charlie, if you could scroll up just a little more, a couple lines. Okay, there we go. And what they said is, no, uh, Arizona does not have a more expansive right than the Fourth Amendment. We are following the third-party doctrine, and this information is not uh, a private affair under the private affairs clause. Therefore, the administrative subpoena was enough, and, uh, and again, our Fourth Amendment in the Arizona, the Arizona version of the Fourth Amendment right in the U.S. Constitution is equal. We're not, we don't grant more rights than does the Arizona, than does the U.S. Constitution Fourth Amendment right. Remember, uh, your, your state constitution can grant you more rights than the U.S. Constitution. It just can't grant you less rights. Next case I want to talk about was um, State of Arizona versus Ainsworth, number 30. And basically what this has to do is... Um, this has to do with, uh, as you all know, Rule 32 under some proceedings is now Rule 33. Rule 32 is the same proceeding under um, if you go to trial for uh, problems with counsel. Uh, Rule 33 is now for your petition with problems if it's a plea. So Rule 32 has to do with trials. Rule 33 has to do with plea agreements. Um, you use one or the other depending on was it a trial or was it a, a plea agreement. And in this case, basically the defendant is saying the appointed counsel was uh, inadequate and, uh, and uh, he should get the case overturned. And basically what they were doing is they were looking at it and they said, well, the trial court looked at the information and said there's no uh, valid reason for this case. Um, it's inexcusably untimely and there's no meritorious reasons under the former Rule 32.2b. And they're saying, the defendant's saying, well, wait, you have to appoint me counsel to look at this. And basically the court here said, no, we don't. The judge can make that decision. Um, and they say there we must we therefore must decide whether the trial court properly dismissed Ainsworth's notice as inexcusably untimely and non-meritorious under former Rule 32.3. Uh, they argue that no, the trial court abused discretion because it ignored his argument that his trial counsel had a duty to continually represent him. He contends that the court should not have denied him relief under Rule 32, and therefore the remainder of the ruling was also incorrect that the judge ruled. And basically, this has to do with the judge dismissing the petition without appointing counsel to an independent decision. And as they stated, as we have previously stated, nothing in Rule 
point to be suggests that counsel must be appointed for an indigent defendant before a trial court conducts a preliminary hearing or preliminary review mandated by that rule. So you can look at it and say, wait a minute, even if everything you say is true here, you don't, it's untimely and excusably untimely, and there's no notorious reason to grant it, and therefore I'm not giving you counsel. This case says you can do that. Next case I want to talk about was number 31. In this case, they were talking about the jury instruction having to do with justification. And the parties want to change the word defendant with person. And um, they said, no, you can't do that. Do not substitute the word defendant with person. The reason being is justification has to do with was the defendant justified, not was some purpose. And the argument was, is the state could argue the victim was justified, thus shifting the burden back to the defendant. So, or the defense. So remember, if you ever give the justification defense and someone says, well, the statute says person, doesn't say defendant. The instruction says defendant. And the reason it says defendant is because the justification defense is for the defendant, not anyone. So keep that in mind if that occurs. Next case I want to talk about was 33. And basically, in this case, they were challenging the Constitution. Whoops. <laughs> they were con challenging the constitutionality of 13-905, the set-aside statute. And in here, they found it is constitutional. There's no problem with that. So you can continue using 905 in order to set aside convictions if you find it to be appropriate. Next case I would like to discuss with you is number 37. And basically, this is another restitution case. And what happens in this case is the case is litigated, the sentencing is done, restitution is ordered, and then later on, uh, someone comes forward and says, wait a minute, I'm a victim. I'm also entitled to restitution. I want to reopen this case and have a hearing on my restitution claims. This case also involved a restitution cap but that had been decided by the previous case, so they didn't really address it here, except to say, remember, there's no restitution cap. And in this case, the judge said, I'm not hearing it. Um, the restitution should have been decided later. I mean, sorry, restitution should have been decided earlier um, at the sentencing, and therefore it is too late. The, uh, there's an appeal up, or special action up, and it basically states the restitution cap, you know, they say it's already been addressed, so we're not addressing it here. It's already been decided. And in this case, the court reversed and sent the case back for an evidentiary hearing as to whether there is any restitution. And it states, no rule or statute imposes a deadline for claiming restitution. Although section 13-603C is silent as to when restitution must be assessed, generally it is at the time of sentencing. The Superior Court, however, may set a reasonable deadline for filing a restitution claim. List the case. Superior Court may require the timely assertion of the right to avoid waiver, but our records do not show the Superior Court entered any such order. Same would be in effect for um, the limited courts of jurisdiction. So keep that in mind. And this is coming more and more relevant where you're seeing issues about, um, well, this counseling is going to go on for a while. Um, counseling is a proper, uh, 
restitution request, and therefore we ask that restitution a deadline be set or a time set for it. Um, I see this more and more. It's not a lot that you see it, but do you see you do see it occasionally. So remember, you can set a deadline um, and set it reasonably. Um, you know, don't set it well next week. You have to have any restitution. Set it a year, something like that, depending on how long. For instance, they say the person is going to require counseling for the next six months. You could set a restitution deadline for seven months. Person's going to require counseling for a year. Set it for um, 13 months, that sort of thing. Set a reasonable deadline if you can't come up with an amount right then and there, sentencing or at a restitution hearing. And generally, you will have it set. For instance, my car was damaged. It cost me $500 to fix it. I want my 500 bucks. That takes care of things fairly easy. In certain crimes where counseling is requested or needed, that can take more time, and you can uh, you don't have to set it all at sentencing. You can set a reasonable deadline. So keep that in mind. Keep that uh, for what you might want to do. Next case has to do with number 38, and basically, in, in these cases, we're getting a lot more issues where the person is requesting the medical records of the victim. And we know in victims' rights, victims can refuse to give discovery. Um, so you're getting a lot more of these cases. Generally, cases said beforehand, you're not getting that discovery. You're not entitled to it. That's a fishing expedition. The victim has rights. You're not getting it. This case is different um, where it says, yeah, you are going to get the review of the records. The reason in this case is it goes specifically to the defense. The defendant knew about this, so it's not a vague thing of, hey, I understand the victim went to counseling, and I'd like to see those counseling records because she may have told the counselor this didn't happen, or she was the aggressor and I want to know this. In this case, it was boyfriend-girlfriend. Boyfriend ends up killing girlfriend and claiming self-defense. He wants to the court to review an in-camera, and again, this helps too with his claim, is I just don't want to see these and go through it all. I want the court to review them in camera and decide, am I entitled to this type of information? And the reason he wants to see him is because six years earlier, she had attacked him and been put in the hospital for mental illness on the attack on him. So this can help help his defense. It's specific. He knew about it. And it, like I said, it goes right to his defense. And the, uh, in this case, the trial court agreed to allow it. The appellate court disagreed to allow it. And it vacates one of our earlier cases from 2019, and basically they say, we hold that a reasonable possible reasonable possibility standard applies to determine defendant's right to in-camera, that's important, in-camera review of the victim's privileged mental health records. Defendant must demonstrate, remember, the defendant has to demonstrate to you a constitutionally entitlement to such information in order to present a complete defense, in this case justification, by showing a reasonable possibility that the information sought includes evidence that would be material to the defense or necessary to cross-examine a witness. The defendant's request must be based on more than mere speculation and must include su sufficiently specific basis to, determine, to deter fishing expeditions, prevent a wholesale production of the victim's medical records, and adequately protect the party's Completing, competing interest. So this isn't the case where you get, hey, as I said earlier, 
she's been in counseling, therefore I want to see the records to see what happens. Or for instance, a uh, child molest victim. Hey, she's being counseled for this. I want to see the records because maybe she told the counselor it didn't occur. You have to be specific. You have to say how it reaches your defense, that sort of thing. It can't be a fishing expedition to say, hey, let's see what's in there and see what happens. So keep in mind, it is not an automatic denial. You're not getting those victims records or mental health records. There has to be a hearing if the defendant presents specific evidence that uh, these are relevant, and then you might do an in-camera inspection. It's not automatically denied unless it's a fishing expedition. It's not automatically granted unless the defendant can meet certain um, criteria under that case. Next case I want to talk about would be number 40. This is a case that has to do with a specific statute. It also comes up, importantly, this statute comes up to a new um, jury trial right that we'll talk about when we get to case number 47. And basically, in this case, State versus Patel, they had the statute. And the statute basically said, um, you know, it's where you kill someone or seriously physical injury them through a traffic violation. Um, and originally, the statute limited restitution to $10,000. Then they amended the statute years later to limit it to $100,000. And then in Patel, there was an appeal saying, wait a minute, one statute says you are entitled to full economic loss for, uh, of the injury or the death, and therefore, uh, you can't have a cap on it. And the appellate court said that's correct. You can't have a cap on it. Restitution is the full amount. It cannot be capped for certain crimes. Um, that was taken up to the Arizona Supreme Court, and the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed the appellate court and found that part of the statute to be wrong and non-enforceable. They put, we hold today that a constitutional right to receive restitution guaranteed by the Victim's Bill of Rights is a right to receive the full amount of economic loss or injury caused by the defendant's criminal conduct. Accordingly, ARS 28-672G, limitation on restitution award is unconstitutional and void. So keep that in mind, there is no longer a limit on the restitution that occurs in that case. You get a lot of them here in city court or JP court because it's a misdemeanor as opposed to a felony. Next case I wanted to talk about was State versus Turner, number 41. This had several interesting issues in it, but the one I thought was going to be most interesting and we're going to find occur a lot now is, as you all know, police are now generally using body cameras. Sometimes during the investigation, they turn off their body camera or they mute their body camera for whatever reason. Sometimes it's the officers talking amongst themselves how they're going to do the investigation, what they want done on the case. Sometimes they're just waiting and it's taking forever and they just shut the camera off to see what's going on. They may use the facility, something like that. They're turning the camera off. In this case, it was a murder case. And um, the defendant shoots down a person who is going with his girlfriend. And the police come. They find... The per, everyone's there, the dead body's there, that type of thing. Um, but during the investigation, the police will turn off the cameras, like for instance, when grieving family members are walking by, because they don't want to show the sobbing, they don't want to show how horrible they feel, that sort of stuff. 
They will also turn off the camera or the sound when they're making discussions amongst themselves about how to do the case. Defendant moves to have the case dismissed because by turning off the body camera and muting them, they were depriving him of vital information. He didn't really say what, since he basically shot the person and killed them before the police arrived and is there with the dead body when the police arrived. And, um, uh, but he says it's a due process violation, therefore the case should be um, dismissed. The police um, did do these things, but they have a good reason for doing them. For instance, we didn't want to show the grieving family members as they're walking by. There's no evidentiary value to that. There's no purpose to that. The, uh, we weren't getting any evidence. We were discussing how we're going to do the investigation of the case when we muted the uh, cameras. This case found um, that uh, defendant loses because there was no bad faith on the police on behalf of the police. They gave their reasons as to why it wasn't done. And then he cannot show that this would have led to clearly exculpatory information that cannot be gotten in any other way. So um, you, as I say, you're going to see more and more of that. I'm sure it'll probably be brought up to the Arizona Supreme Court. We'll get a definitive ruling for this state. But since it's happening all the time, this is another thing that's going to be reoccurring and something you're going to see. Next case I want to talk about was number 43, State versus Duffy. And this is, um, I'm not really sure, this is again one of those cases where I'm not really sure why the judge did this. Um, I'm sure they had a good reason at the time. Um, I just don't know what it is. And basically, um, you don't have this issue a lot of times, but it, it does occur. Um, you and I are driving in a car. Me, being the innocent type of little person I am, am totally naive and don't know what's going on. You, being the vindictive, mean, criminal person you are, have filled the car with pot. Police catch us. I say, I had no idea what was going on. You, in the one moment of your life where you're willing to tell the truth, say, it's my pot and the male driver, Jim Blake, had no idea it was there. Fast forward, trial's going to occur. Now, the defense has changed for both of us. Well, not for me. I, again, being the naive, innocent person, say, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know anything was there. You now say, it's not mine. I had no idea it was going there. And the police set us both up. That's why all this occurred. Now, the problem is, is you and I have hired the same lawyer. Now, while that may make economic sense, it doesn't make sense from a legal standpoint. Because first of all, the very first two statements are contrary to each other. Your statement exculpates me. You're saying, I have no idea. It's mine. I want that statement. I want I don't necessarily want you convicted, but if I can use that to get out of it, I'm going to. So there's a problem with us both having the same lawyer. Second of all, state may want to cut me a deal because they have less evidence against me and evidence that I might be innocent in order to have me testify against you. How does your lawyer cut me a deal to testify against you, his other client? Prosecutor realizes right off the bat, there's a problem here. Um, there's an inherent conflict. It's obvious. Twice the prosecutor raises it to the judge. The judge, from what we can tell from the record that's in the appeal, basically says, uh, defense counsel, is there a conflict here? Uh, no, judge, there isn't a conflict. 
and my clients have waived any conflict that might exist. Well, that's good enough for me. We're going to proceed. Both people are convicted at trial. What is the obvious thing that's going to happen on the appeal is, hey, we should have had separate counsel. There wasn't enough inquiry here to determine what occurred. And they write in this case, in this case, we hold that when a trial court is advised of a potential conflict arising from an attorney's representation of the co-defendant, it must, the court must conduct an independent inquiry to confirm the defendant's Sixth Amendment right that conflict-free counsel was weighed knowingly and voluntarily. Critically, to satisfy its duty, the court must do more than simply credit the attorney's assurances the defendants had a common defense and waived any conflict. In its cruelty, the court should advise the defendants of the right to conflict-free counsel, make the defendants aware of the identified conflict, here it's obvious, but you need to make them aware on the record, explain the possible ramifications of the conflict, advise defendants of the right to confer with about the conflict with different counsel, and ask if the defendants understand the risk and wish to proceed with counsel regardless. This is not, you don't have to specifically do this. It's not saying you must do this in every case, but this gives you a roadmap that will make and help you establish your record and make sure you don't get overturned. And so keep this in mind, do all these things. And remember, defendants can always have this person, but you need to establish, uh, defendants can always have one counsel if they want to and they make a knowingly, voluntarily waiver of it. But make sure you go through all this, make sure they're advised of all this, make sure it's all on the record. Because you know, once they're convicted, the first thing you're going to say is, you made a mistake, judge. You should have not allowed this. You should have stopped it. And so you want to make sure that you take care of all those ramifications in the meantime. Okay, our next case would be number 44. This has to do with, scroll down, there you go. This has to do with... Um, you know, you always get into the situation where you jump to, uh, was this a proper search? Before you jump to that conclusion, or was it a proper stop? Let me give you another example. Like, for instance, I'm the officer. I think you might be DUI. I'm watching you weave. I see you pull into a store, park your car and get out. I park my car and say, excuse me, sir. May I speak to you for a few minutes? You, of course you may, officer. You're such a fine-looking young man with that mustache. What questions do you have of me, officer? And I ask, and then I develop probable cause. Now, the first thing you'll get is sometimes from defense counsel say, I had absolutely no right to stop you. Well, the answer is people start looking for, well, what was the right that Officer Blake stopped this guy? You've jumped too far ahead. First thing you need to say is there was no stop. You stopped on your own. I didn't light you up. I didn't block you off. I didn't force you into this stop. Then, when you got out of your car, again, I did not stop you. I asked, excuse me, sir, may I speak to you? And you agreed. That's a consensual encounter. There's no stop. So you don't even get to what were my reasons for doing this. They're irrelevant. I didn't stop you. In this case, Google does a search of customers' photos. And when they go through someone's photos, they find what looks like child pornography to them. 
they're required by law to report that to law enforcement and an agency called MCNEC, which is a government agency that works with the police on these types of issues. So Google does a search, finds the photos, they're required by law to um, report that to the police because of the law, and then you're brought up on charges, they bring up there's no search warrant. Private, in, private pictures of mine were searched without a search warrant. Therefore, the government had no reason to do this, and uh, the evidence should be suppressed. It's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. What the courts point out is you've gone too far too quickly. First is, was there an illegal search by the government? No. Google is not a government agent. It was not acting as a government agent. <coughs> Therefore, there was no illegal search by the government. It was a search by a private party, which they can do, and which you could conceivably, private party could be sued conceivably as a violation. For instance, if I, as just Joe Blow, walk in your house and see illegal drugs, and I go to tell the police, hey, there's illegal drugs in there, they get a search warrant or do a knock and talk and agree to allow them in. I wasn't a government agent when I saw that and when I brought it back and reported to the police. Therefore, there's no government involvement in the search. Here, they said there's no government involvement. Google is not a government agent. The way the defense tried to get around that in this case is say, Google has a legal obligation by law to report this to the police. That's true. They do have a legal obligation to report if they find this to the police. They don't have a legal obligation to search. They're not ordered by the cops to search. They don't have an agreement with the cops to search. And therefore, it is a private search, not subject to the Fourth Amendment, because it's not a government intrusion. So keep that in mind. You don't jump to, did Google, have a, did Google the, or did the government have a right to do this? Because Google was not acting as, a, as the government. Uh, real quick case is number 45. If you have to do with disqualifying your local prosecutor, make sure you read this case. It gives you information on when a disqualification should occur of the prosecutor and when it shouldn't, that type of thing. And gives you things to look for as to determine was there a proper disqualification. In this case, the court did disqualify the Attorney General's office in Tucson from doing these prosecutions because of the improper conduct alleged by the prosecutor in that office. So if you ever have that issue come up, make sure you read this case. Next case I want to talk about was number 47, because we're almost done. This case has to do with a new jury eligible trial uh, case or offense in city court. And basically, this had been decided beforehand that 28-672, this is where traffic accident causes death or serious physical injury, and it's one of the main traffic accidents. Do you get a jury trial? Originally, another court said, no, you don't get a jury trial under this statute. This new case comes up and says, yes, you do get a jury trial. And the reason being is they say that 28-672, subsection of it, has to do or substantially similar to the common law involuntary manslaughter charge. And remember, you get a, you get a jury trial under Darendahl if um, the law requires it, for instance, DUI. The law says you get a jury trial under DUI. Second of all, if um, pre-territorial days, or no, so pre-statehood days, while you're a territory, while you're a territory, 
the common law antecedent got you a jury trial. So you look to those things. That's why DUI gets one because the law requires it. Theft gets one because pre-territorial days, um, as you know, the other cases they granted. Now, in this case, they say it's similar to the common law antecedent of involuntary manslaughter. So in this charge, it's either death or serious physical injury. I would argue, and in this case it was a death, I would argue you're only entitled to a jury trial in this charge if it's death. If it's serious physical injury, you don't get a jury trial. And what's the reason for that is the common law antecedent was involuntary manslaughter. You have to be dead to have manslaughter, not seriously physical injury. So the common law antecedent wasn't involuntary serious physical injury. So I believe this case says you get a jury trial, you only get it when there's death. And they looked at the, uh, the traffic offense of being um, causing death by failing to exercise due care to avoid a pedestrian in the roadway. There's several um, different subsections. I would argue right now that you get it under that specific subsection. There'd have to be an argument made, no, you get it under other subsections, but that would be the court to determine that and make that decision. So keep that in mind. This is a big change for justice courts and uh, limited jurisdiction courts where these misdemeanors are tried, that this is now um, for uh, a new jury trial eligible offense. Final case we'll talk about, um, and this is just because Jerry Landau wanted me to put this in. It doesn't, I don't, it doesn't really affect uh, uh, municipal courts or JP courts doing misdemeanor cases. And basically this just came out and talks about an aggravated DUI under the influence. While it's a felony for the DUI because you required to have an interlock and didn't have it on your car. And basically what they found is, is the jury has to be instructed and that's something the state has to prove that you knew or had reason to know that you had to have the interlock on your car. So it's an element of the crime. It has to go to the jury as an element of the crime. And if for some reason you're ever in superior court doing this felony, make sure that you have that information. But that's the newest case I have. And as I said, uh, it's a DUI case, but it wouldn't really apply in municipal courts or justice of peace courts. That concludes all the cases I have. Does anyone have any questions they wanted to ask? And, and that was absolutely fabulous. Uh, you know, you only have 30 minutes at the judicial conference. And we gave you 90 minutes and you took 83 minutes. Uh, so we do have seven minutes left for uh, questions. Uh, if you want to have a question, I, I, I'm going to unmute everybody. Uh, so, because I've muted the people on the phone. So, if you're on the phone now, you do have the ability to ask a question. If you have a camera, turn your camera on. Any questions for Judge Blake? All right, we have two people turn their cameras. Monica, do you have a question or Judge Reagan? No. No question, just wonderful as usual. All right, uh, the materials will be available on Hightail. Uh, we thank Judge Blake once again. Uh, this is just an outstanding presentation and, and such a resource. So thank you all and have a great day, everybody. Hey, Charles.
Charles, yes. could you send me a yes. CLE certificate just on this course? I most certainly will. Thank Have you very much. Day. And thank you all for uh, coming. <laughs>